Okay, we're in Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning, and we'll be starting in verse 6. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word again and the opportunity to study it. Thank you for telling us about how you interacted with your people, how they responded to accomplish your uh, predetermined plan for them and for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We just pray that as we study this morning, we'll learn more about you, learn more about our responsibility and toward you and, and how you work in our lives. We pray that you'll bless our time now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Daryl, did you turn on the recording? Okay. <laughs> Chapter 4, to get our context, we'll read verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11 in Chapter 4. Start. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore that wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? <coughs> now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their <coughs> sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had in mind to work. But when Sanblad and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Meshadites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. So we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right among them, right there among them, and they will and will kill them and put an end to that work. Okay. So last week we started chapter 4 and we saw that uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and the other men in opposition to the Jews rebuilding the wall heard that they were actually under construction and they were furious with this and they began, Sanballat especially, by just ridiculing the Jews, their ability to rebuild the wall, what they were doing, everything, even Tobiah got on board by saying that, you know, it's such a poorly constructed wall, a fox could knock it over. And their, their intent was to demoralize the Jews, uh, persuade the workers to quit, uh, thinking that it was a hopeless project. Um, but uh, we saw that Nehemiah responds to their uh, mocking by praying. And this was primarily what we call an imprecatory prayer. You know, God bring our 
judgment down on the heads of our enemies. You know, like David prayed, you know, smash their teeth within their mouth. <laughs> uh, and so Nehemiah prayed that all the things that they were wishing upon the Jews would fall on their own heads. And so we've got this ridicule and mocking going on. And so today we're starting at verse 6, which is the response of the Jews. It says, so we built the wall. The whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So despite all this mocking and ridicule, they continued to work hard on the wall. Now, New American Standard at the end of verse 5 said they have demoralized the builders. Well, that kind of contradicts what we see here in verse 6. They had a heart to build a wall. Um, I think the other translations are better where it says they were mocking God in the face of the builders in verse 5. But they're working hard. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. First, it really was for God's glory. And they understood that. And this is what Nehemiah had said really in verses 4 and 5. You know, they, That it was... Uh, God who was being mocked here and he's he's really in a sense preaching uh, to the workers here um, that it's God's glory that's at stake <coughs> let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we'll see similar exhortations to the church 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Someone like to read verse 31 for us. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay, so we are to do all to the glory of God. So there's there's our motivation. Um, do all for God's glory. And then staying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, someone like to turn to verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, so if you're working in the Lord, your, your labor is not in vain. You will succeed. You'll accomplish something in God's plan. God has a plan, and he will make ensure that you will accomplish what he has determined to be accomplished. So this is encouraging to them to know it was for God's glory. And then secondly, they really had the mutual support of each other here. Um, when you have a group of people working together on a project, you know, you're not, you're not alone. You're, you're encouraged by the people around you working on the same thing, especially if you have a common enemy. You know, you tend to band together and encourage each other. Um, and so, and so that helps with the encouragement and uh, and the support. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes, <coughs> chapter four. This should be a, a familiar passage. Ecclesiastes chapter four. Would someone like to read verses nine through twelve for us? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. 
but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Okay, so that's what we see here in verse 10 especially. You know, you can pick each other up and keep each other going, encourage each other, give support to each other. And in 12, you, talk, you see mutual defense. If you're attacked, um, <coughs> one person uh, can be taken out, but if you have two or three, you have a much better chance of defending yourself. Let's also turn to <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10. And we see this applied to the church. Hebrews chapter 10. Someone would like to read verses 24 and 25 here. For Christ did not enter a holy place okay. made with hands. So now that's uh, 10, chapter 10. Right? Yeah. Verses 24 and 25. Oh, 24. Yeah. For Christ but that says. Oh, I said it starts at the bottom of the page and it said 10. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Okay. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. For not forsaking our own assembly together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you you see the day drawing near. Okay, so here's the church. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews is telling us we need to get together and encourage each other and work together. Um, we have enough passages in Scripture that tell us that we are in a battle. You know, Satan is our enemy. He's opposed to us. He attacks us. He discourages us. And you know, if you're you're a lone wolf Christian, you're going to be probably taken down and rendered ineffective. And so that's uh, why we come together as a body in the church. Um, we have in the past looked at the word koinonia, which is typically translated fellowship. And I've pointed out that it, it means more than just having coffee together and, and talking to each other. It actually implies working together for a common goal. Now, some of the illustrations I think we used is like uh, in football, an offensive line. You've got five men on the offensive line, and they have to work as a team. Because if one of them fails, the whole, I mean, basically the whole group has failed. And I think it's, it's funny, sometimes you'll see, you know, professional football, these 300-pound giants, five of them standing together in a semicircle holding hands. Because <laughs> they're a unit. They support each other. They encourage each other. They have a common goal. They have to work together. Um, the other good illustration is like a um, special forces group, like a SEAL team. They encourage. They watch each other's back. They have to coordinate their moves. They encourage and um, support each other. And so that's something like, uh, you know, we should see in the church. You know, we don't uh, yell at each other. We shouldn't, and we should be encouraging and supporting each other because we have a common goal and we, and we, and we work together. Let's, let's go back in Ezra chapter 5. This is back when they were working on the temple. Ezra chapter 5, and someone like to read verse 8 for us. He 
be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, and is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Okay, so here they were building. Work was diligent and prospering in their hands. They were successful. They were making good progress. And that is why the Samaritans were a little upset with them, is because they were working together so well. They wanted to throw a wrench in the works and slow them down. So, the Jews here in, in verse uh, 6 go back to work. And what did they accomplish? Well, this is another one of those places where it's a little tough to figure out what the Hebrew is saying. Um, basically, I think the Hebrew literally says something like, the whole wall was finished to its middle. The middle, middle of what? Um, most translations say half its height. But you could say half its length. That would fit the Hebrew just as well. Um, I have a feeling that basically it was, you could say it was just half finished. You know, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of trying to manage a project. If you're trying to get 1.7 miles of wall simultaneously built to half its height, that would be almost impossible to manage that. So I don't think that happened. Besides, um, uh, we also have in the next few verses, it talks about breaches, low spots in the wall. So I think it was half finished. There's probably some of the easier places. They may have completed it. Because remember, we, we talked about some of these groups that finished one part of the wall and then they were given a second assignment somewhere else. So we're looking at a half finished wall. Um, probably some places almost to the top, other places still pretty low um, and, and vulnerable. But, uh, but it does tell us that they're about half done with the project, about halfway through. So going on, let's look in verse 7, we see that the opposition is going to increase. You know, they don't want to see this wall built. So looking at 7, now it came about that when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. Um, so here's our, here's our typical list. We've got Sanballat with the Samaritans to the north, Tobiah and the Ammonites to the east, the Arabs, whose leader was Geshem, he's not mentioned here by name, they're to the south, and the Ashdodites are to the west. Ashdod was the chief city of the Philistines. So this really represents the Philistine nation. And the Philistines have always been a thorn in the side of the Jews. From the time of David having to fight Goliath, today is called the Gaza Strip. And that's where the Palestinians shoot missiles into Israel. So they, they have always been um, in opposition to Israel. Back to the wall. I hope it doesn't yep. take the 80-20 rule. <laughs> first 20%, I mean, the first 8% of my day 20% of the time, the last 20% takes 80%. Yeah, I'm sure it does. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see that as, 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 the, as the construction goes on, it probably gets more difficult. Um, 
So anyways, the opposition receives the news that the Jews are continually are continuing to work on rebuilding the walls despite the mocking that they <coughs> hope to demoralize them with. And worse yet is the breaches in the walls are beginning to be closed. You know, when you get the gaps closed up, and if they get the gates installed, now you've got a city that can be defended against attack. So they couldn't intimidate them anymore if that was accomplished. So they had to act, and they had to act quickly, and this infuriated them. So they had to take some immediate and decisive action in order to stop this project, or they wouldn't have another chance. So we see that in verse 8. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So the opposition leaders come together and they plot. And the word for fight here is the typical word for war in the Old Testament. So this is actual armed attack. It's not a cold war anymore with words being thrown back and forth. They're actually out getting ready to cut and slash at each other. And this is a plot which implies that it's, it's secret. Um, a couple reasons for that. First, as we see, they're going to want to want to be like a surprise attack. Um, they they want to have the workers be unsuspecting, defenseless, and then just come in and attack them, like a sneak attack. Now, secondly, is more political. This project was approved by King Artaxerxes, so they can't really proclaim that we're going to attack a government-sponsored project. That's not, a, that's, that's not a good plan. So that might be treated as rebellion and insurrection against the, you know, Artaxerxes. And they would have dire consequences if they did that. So they had to plot and keep it secret. Let's turn to Psalm 83. This is a psalm about Israel's enemies and how they conspire against them. <coughs> Psalm 83. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8. So why don't we read around again? Marie, you want to start for us? Psalm 83. A song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. See how our enemies growl? How they how their how your foes near their head how their foes rear their heads. You're in the right place. Yeah, right, thank you. Oh, okay. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. Gebelites, Ammonites, and Ameliites, and the people from Philistia and Tyre. Assyrians also joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. Okay. Sorry for the names to read. Um, this, this is from the about the time of David, Song of Asaph. Um, 
So we see their enemies conspiring together against the Jews. This is nothing new. And, you know, looking at these names, uh, we see Ammon. There's the Ammonites, Tobiah the Ammonite. Uh, we see uh, Philistia, the Philistines. In Nehemiah, those are, that's the Ashdodites, same group. Uh, Assyria is to the north. Those are the Samaritans. Um, so, you know, it's the same same groups of people. They've been fighting against Israel for centuries and conspiring against them. So this constant opposition, I, I think, is uh, a matter of basically it's it's inspired by Satan. Satan is opposed to God, and he attacks God. He attacks God's people. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. Today, it's the church. You know, we are the body of Christ on earth, and, and so he works against us. And so, as in Psalm 83, uh, they called out to God for help, and so we see Nehemiah do the same thing here in, in chapter 9. Verse 9, excuse, chapter 4, verse 9. It says, But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. So the Jews respond by praying and taking action. And this phrase, it says, But we prayed to our God. You know, that would make a good poster. For, when I put something up on the wall or on a coffee cup, but we prayed to our God. Um, you know, it really doesn't matter what happens to us or what the situation is. That should be our first response, praying to God. Um, you know, we're not given the content of the prayer. I would assume they prayed for protection, for encouragement, uh, for success in building, maybe some imprecatory prayer like Nehemiah had in verses 4 and 5. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, smash our enemies. Protect us. Smash our enemies. They're your enemies too, God. Um, so take some action. Um, and that's the second part. They took action. You know, God does want us to do something in these situations. Now, there are a few places in Scripture where we have God tell us to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And this seems to be more of a rarity, a special occasion where... God puts us in a totally and completely helpless situation so that he can demonstrate his power completely on his own. You know, that I think this comes from the, the Jews as they were leaving Egypt. They were backed up against the Red Sea with an Egyptian army on their tails. There was nothing they could do. And God tells them, you just stand still, I will save you. You'll see my greatness and God glorifies himself in those situations. Normally, though, we're told to pray and then do something. So let's look at some examples. Let's go to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, and someone like to read verse 36 for us. on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. 
Okay, so we're to watch or be alert and pray. We're not just to pray and then sit back and do nothing. But Jesus is telling them to watch and be alert. And then we got a couple passages uh, from James and John. Let's turn to James, where he tells us that we need to do something. In this case, he doesn't mention prayer, but he does mention that we have to take some action. James chapter 2, would someone like to read verses 15 through 17 for us? If your brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, it has no works as dead, being by itself. Okay, so he doesn't mention prayer here, but he's talking about, you know, you believe that God can help, but don't just say, you know, I'll pray for you, when you can have it in your own hand to do something about it. And I, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it, I've heard about it. It was like a men's prayer group, and they were taking prayer requests, and one guy says, you know, I, I'm, I really need a little bit of cash. I need like 20 bucks. Can you pray about it? And they started to pray it. One guy finally just stops and hold it. <laughs> he got out of his wallet and handed him a twenty. <laughs> Faith in action. Yeah. Yeah. It's just you take care of it. I mean that's why God gave him the twenty. He he was the answer to prayer. Um, let's turn to first John chapter three. We have something very similar. Prayer was answered. First John chapter three. And someone like to read verses 17 and 18. And whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Okay. So this is very similar to what James wrote. Um, John is telling us it's an act of love. James is telling us it's an act of faith. Um, so God expects us to take action not just not just say okay I'm going to pray about it and stand back and, and just see if God does something you know? um, maybe if we are unable to help ourselves that's appropriate because sometimes that's the case we would like to help but we can't um, in this case you know, Nehemiah and the Jews did not expect God to just rebuild the walls on their own, on his own. You know, does God have the power to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he spoke and the universe came into existence. He could have rebuilt the wall. But they didn't expect that. God expects them to use their hard labor to rebuild the wall. And yet at the same time, they knew that they needed God's encouragement, they needed God's strength, they needed God's protection. Um, they needed God's help in order to accomplish this task. So they pray and they work. Um, now they also realized that they needed to take some kind of precautions against this attack that they'd, they'd heard about. So they set up a guard around the clock. And let's go back in Ezra, chapter 4, 
and verse 23. <coughs> Somebody like to read that for us. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem by force and power made them cease. Okay, so sometimes in the in the previous 20 years when they had tried to rebuild the walls, the enemies had come by force of arms and stopped them. So they had a history. They knew that they would up and do it. So it was not an empty threat. Um, they knew there was a danger there. So they've got this threat from their opponents. And in verse 10, we see some discouragement setting in. Verse 10 says, Thus in Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish. And we are, un we are excuse me, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. <coughs> so you're seeing some discouragement among the workforce here. Um, it appears the job might be a little bigger and a little harder than they thought at first. Some of the initial enthusiasm is starting to wear a little thin. Um, and this verse is in the form of a song or a dirge. And I've seen examples of, you know, sometimes you get groups in the military and as they're marching, they make up these songs that talk about how miserable they are and what an awful thing they're in and how bad their commander is. And they sing those as they march along. Um, I don't know if work groups do that or... But uh, this might be an example of that. They're working on the wall and singing, oh, what was us? <coughs> yeah. See, on the sailing ships, they have a positive song to it, the shanty man. Yeah. Have a positive song. They should have a positive song, but they don't. Uh, what's that old song, 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt? Yeah. So that's kind of what they're singing here. Yeah, what was me? Um, the song does not mention God. Uh, it does not talk about God's power and plan. It does not call on him for help. It, they have basically forgotten God. And the result is discouragement. It kind of reminds me of when they went into the promised land and came back and said, oh, we're turning for, you know, just that mm -hmm. feeling of, we can't do it. Yeah. When we forget God, we become discouraged. That's one good aspect of daily devotions. It helps us to not fall into that. So, what do we see here? He said the workers are starting to become weary. Um, you know, I assume they're not doing any work on the Sabbath, but that leaves six straight days of work, probably a good at least 12 hours a day of hard labor. Remember, they're building a block wall out of masonry blocks. Uh, you know, I've built walls out of concrete blocks, and that's tiring. It wears out, your hands get torn and bloody. And, and you remember who's doing this? We have goldsmiths. We have perfumers. We have priests and Levites. We have, we have a lot of people here who have not been doing hard physical labor. I'm sure that some of the people who have come in are, are used to work in the fields and they're, you know, they can handle this. But uh, 
for a lot of them, this is a total shock um, at how hard it is, you know, and they're getting exhausted. Now, it also talks about the problem with clearing the rubble. You know, that, you know, if you've seen pictures of cities either after a bombardment or a big earthquake, you know, the streets are just piles of rubble. They've got a path cleared through the street so you can walk or maybe one lane to drive through, but it's just piles of rubble. And, you know, that may have been some of what they had here. So they're going through this, and first they have to clear the path where the wall is going to go, make sure it's clear. But then you also have to remember that they're looking for blocks, stones that are actually usable. So they have to dig through the pile of rubble to find the decent blocks. And then those blocks have to be carried to the wall to be, to be built. Um, you know, and they're talking about you know, the strength of a burden bearers is failing. You know, an awful lot of this wall construction was digging blocks out of the piles of rubble and carrying them to the wall. The actual placing them in place might have been the easy part. Um, the commentary is also mentioned. As the wall gets higher, you have to, the blocks have to go further up. <clears throat> yeah, we, we talked about the, um, the wall that was built in 1550 being 40 feet high. That's hard just climbing stairs 40 feet up if you've got a big stone to carry as you're going up the, the ramp or the ladder or whatever. That's also uh, wears you out. So it's getting harder and harder. The, you know, they, they found the easy stones to begin with, and now they have to dig further to find the hard ones and have to carry them up higher. They're getting discouraged. And so verse 11, we got another demoralizing aspect. It says, And our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. So there's the danger of a sneak attack. So this is, the enemies are not planning a, a, a full frontal assault like you would see on a battlefield. They're not going to line up a you know, build siege walls and stuff like that. Um, they're going to infiltrate assassins among the workers. So this is basically terrorism. Um, this is like a terrorist attack. And if, if you have this kind of a threat, you know, you're constantly, you know, you don't know when it's going to happen. It's not like you can see the army coming over the hill. It's like it's constant possibility of, of danger. That causes an awful lot of stress, anxiety, and that just wears you out. Just the mental stress. And it's a stress today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so they're already exhausted from the physical work. And so now you've got this mental exhaustion, this emotional exhaustion on top of it, the stress. Um, And it says their the goal of the enemies is to put a stop to the work, cause enough of a disturbance to stop the work. Because the people will get so preoccupied with the danger that they just won't be able to work anymore. And so you'll have a half-finished wall, and uh, you know they'll just give up. I think 
you know, sometimes you'll see that on projects, like a, maybe a church decides to build a new building and it's going to be all volunteer labor and everybody shows up for about the first two or three weeks and after that the, your workforce kind of dwindles away and you're down to the diehards who really know how long it's going to take and how much work it is. Um, and that's the that th same thing that's kind of happening here. So they have to keep them going. <clears throat> um, one of the things about this, uh, like a terrorist attack, we already talked about the fact that they can't, the opponents cannot stage a full-fledged military attack because they would be violating the, the order of the king. And they would, you know, Sanballat's name would be behind it if his army attacked the Jews. The king would know who was responsible. On the other hand, terrorists sneaking in, you know, there's some plausible deniability here. No, we didn't know about this. <coughs> some of the locals didn't like the wall, and so they snuck in. And, and so he kind of can um, separate himself from, from what's going on. Um, so those were rumors that were coming. We'll see in verse 12 that they kind of get confirmed. Verse 12, And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So this is the confirmation. There were Jews that lived out among where the Samaritans and the others were, and they heard about these plots. They saw the preparations going on, and they came and they reported to Nehemiah what they had seen, what they had heard. Now this, this statement says that they received these reports ten times. Well, this, this is a figure of speech. It means many times. Um, I've told you once, I've told you a million times, right? We have this thing. They would say, if I've told you once, I've told you ten times, uh, many times. Let's look at a few places where we, we see this in the Old Testament. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 31. So you'll see this phrase used in different places. To give you an example of what it actually means. <laughs> Genesis 31, someone like to read verse 7. It says, Jacob and Laban. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. Okay, I don't think Jacob was actually keeping track of how many times Laban changed the deal. Ten times means that it happened over and over and over again. Every time Laban thought he could get away with something, he changed his wages. Um, let's look at Numbers chapter 14. 14. Numbers chapter 14. Okay, Numbers chapter 14, and would someone like to read verse 22? Numbers 14, 22. No, not one of these people will ever enter the land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I performed, both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. Okay. Your version says again and again. 
New American Standard says, Yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. What's interesting here is God is using the metaphor. This is a figure of speech and God is using it when he's speaking to the Jews these ten times because they understood that. Um, One last place. Let's look at 1 Samuel. Chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay. Am I not? The husband is saying, she's, she is not able to have, she's barren, not able to have children. And he's saying, aren't I better to, than many sons, ten sons here? So, this ten means many in many cases. So, we have a project. They're starting to face problems. Some from within, the discouragement. Some from without, from their enemies. What we need now is some really good leadership to overcome the problems. And that's what we'll see Nehemiah comes up with starting in verse 13. So, Robert, would, would you like to close the prayer for us? Father God, we thank you for this time together, that indeed we can look upon your word and, and see your work throughout history, Lord. Father, may it cause our hearts to be inclined towards you. May it cause us to see how you've planned so much in advance and work, indeed, for your glory and the good of people, Lord. May we take that heart as we go into this next hour, Lord. May you continue to prepare our hearts for worship this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.